Chapters 49 and 50 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 49. On his return to Cambridge in the May term of 1858, Ernest and a few other friends who were also intended for orders came to the conclusion that they must now take a more serious view of their position. They therefore attended chapel more regularly than hitherto, and held evening meetings of a somewhat furtive character, at which they would study the New Testament. They even began to commit the epistles of St. Paul to memory in the original Greek they got up Beveridge on the Thirty-Nine Articles, and Pearson on the Creed. In their hours of recreation they read Moore's Mystery of Godliness, which Ernest thought was charming, and Taylor's Holy Living and Dying, which also impressed him deeply, through what he thought was the splendor of its language. They handed themselves over to the guidance of Dean Alford's notes on the Greek Testament, which made Ernest better understand what was meant by difficulties, but also made him feel how shallow and impotent were the conclusions arrived at by German neologians, with whose works, being innocent of German, he was not otherwise acquainted. Some of the friends who joined him in these pursuits were Johnians, and the meetings were often held within the walls of St. John's. I do not know how tidings of these furtive gatherings had reached the Simeonites, but they must have come round to them in some way, for they had not been continued for many weeks before a circular was sent to each of the young men who attended them, informing them that the Reverend Gideon Hawk, a well-known London evangelical preacher, whose sermons were then much talked of, was about to visit his young friend Badcock of St. John's, and would be glad to say a few words to any who might wish to hear them, in Badcock's rooms, on a certain evening in May. Badcock was one of the most notorious of all the Simeonites. Not only was he ugly, dirty, ill-dressed, bumptious, and in every way objectionable, but he was deformed and waddled when he walked, so that he had won a nickname which I can only reproduce by calling it here's my back and there's my back, because the lower parts of his back emphasized themselves demonstratively as though about to fly off in different directions like the two extreme notes in the chord of the augmented sixth, with every step he took. It may be guessed, therefore, that the receipt of the circular had for a moment an almost paralyzing effect on those whom it was addressed, owing to the astonishment which it occasioned them. It certainly was a daring surprise, but like so many deformed people, Badcock was forward and hard to check. He was a pushing fellow to whom the present was just the opportunity he wanted for carrying war into the enemy's quarters. Ernest and his friends consulted. Moved by the feeling that they were now preparing to be clergymen, they ought not to stand so stiffly on social dignity as heretofore, and also perhaps by the desire to have a good private view of a preacher who was then much upon the lips of men, they decided to accept the invitation. When the appointed time came they went with some confusion and self-abasement to the rooms of this man, on whom they had looked down hitherto as from an immeasurable height, 
and with whom nothing would have made them believe a few weeks earlier that they could ever come to be on speaking terms. Mr. Hawke was a very different-looking person from Badcock. He was remarkably handsome, or rather would have been but for the thinness of his lips, and a look of too great firmness and inflexibility. His features were a good deal like those of Leonardo da Vinci. Moreover, he was kempt, looked in vigorous health, and was of a ruddy countenance. He was extremely courteous in his manner, and paid a good deal of attention to Badcock, of whom he seemed to think highly. Altogether our young friends were taken aback, and inclined to think smaller beer of themselves and larger of Badcock than was agreeable to the old Adam who was still alive within them. A few well-known Sims from St. John's and other colleges were present, but not enough to swamp the earnest set, as for the sake of brevity I will call them. After a preliminary conversation in which there was nothing to offend, the business of the evening began by Mr. Hawke standing up at one end of the table and saying, Let us pray. The earnest set did not like this, but they could not help themselves, so they knelt down and repeated the Lord's Prayer and a few others after Mr. Hawke, who delivered them remarkably well. Then, when all had sat down, Mr. Hawke addressed them, speaking without notes and taking for his text the words, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Whether owing to Mr. Hawke's manner, which was impressive, or to his well-known reputation for ability, or whether from the fact that each one of the earnest set knew that he had been more or less a persecutor of the Sims, and yet felt instinctively that the Sims were, after all, much more like the early Christians than he was himself. At any rate, the text, familiar though it was, went home to the consciences of Ernest and his friends as it had never yet done. If Mr. Hawke had stopped here, he would have almost said enough. As he scanned the faces turned towards him, and saw the impression he had made, he was perhaps minded to bring his sermon to an end before beginning it, but if so, he reconsidered himself and proceeded as follows. I give the sermon in full, for it is a typical one, and will explain a state of mind which in another generation or two will seem to stand sadly in need of explanation. My young friends, said Mr. Hawke, I am persuaded that there is not one of you here who doubts the existence of a personal God. If there were, it is to him assuredly that I should first address myself. Should I be mistaken in my belief that all here assembled, except the existence of a God who is present amongst us, though we see him not, and whose eye is upon our most secret thoughts, let me implore the doubter to confer with me in private before we part. I will then put before him considerations through which God has been mercifully pleased to reveal himself to me, so far as any man can understand him, and which I have found bring peace to the minds of others who have doubted. I assume also that there is none who doubts, but that this God, after whose likeness we have been made, did in the course of time have pity upon man's blindness and assume our nature, taking flesh and coming down and dwelling among us as a man, indistinguishable physically from ourselves. 
He who made the sun, moon, and stars, the world and all that therein is, came down from heaven in the person of his Son, with the express purpose of leading a scorned life, and dying the most cruel, shameful death which fiendish ingenuity has invented. While on earth he worked many miracles, he gave sight to the blind, raised the dead to life, fed thousands with a few loaves and fishes, and was seen to walk upon the waves. But at the end of his appointed time he died, as was foredetermined upon the cross, and was buried by a few faithful friends. Those, however, who had put him to death set a jealous watch over his tomb. There is no one, I feel sure, in this room who doubts any part of the foregoing. But if there is, let me again pray him to confer with me in private, and I doubt not that by the blessing of God his doubts will cease. The next day but one after our Lord was buried, the tomb being still jealously guarded by enemies, an angel was seen descending from heaven with glittering raiment and countenance that shone like fire. This glorious being rolled away the stone from the grave, and our Lord himself came forth risen from the dead. My young friends, this is no fanciful story like those of the ancient deities, but a matter of plain history as certain as that you and I are now here together. If there is one fact better vouched for than another in the whole range of certainties, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nor is it less well assured that a few weeks after he had risen from the dead, our Lord was seen by many hundreds of men and women to rise amid the host of angels, into the air upon a heavenward journey, till the clouds covered him and concealed him from the sight of men. It may be said that the truth of these statements has been denied. But what, let me ask you, has become of the questioners? Where are they now? Do we see them here or hear of them? Have they been able to hold what little ground they made during the supineness of the last century? Is there one of your fathers or mothers or friends who does not see through them? Is there a single teacher or preacher in this great university who has not examined what these men had to say and found it not? Did you ever meet one of them, or do you find any of their books securing the respectful attention of those competent to judge concerning them? I think not. And I think also you know as well as I do why it is that they have sunk back into the abyss from which they for a time emerged. It is because, after the most careful and patient examination by the ablest and most judicial minds of many countries, their arguments were found so untenable that they themselves renounced them. They fled from the field, routed, dismayed, and suing for peace nor have they again come to the front in any civilized country. You know these things. Why, then, do I insist upon them? My dear young friends, your own consciousness will have made the answer to each one of you already. It is because 
though you know so well that these things did verily and indeed happen, you know also that you have not realized them to yourselves, as it was your duty to do, nor heeded their momentous, awful import. And now let me go further. You all know that you will one day come to die, or if not to die, for there are not wanting signs which make me hope that the Lord may come again, while some of us now present are alive, yet to be changed. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And the saying shall be brought to pass that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Do you or do you not believe that you will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Do you or do you not believe that you will have to give an account for every idle word that you have ever spoken? Do you or do you not believe that you are called to live, not according to the will of man, but according to the will of that Christ who came down from heaven out of love for you? who suffered and died for you, who calls you to him, and yearns toward you that you may take heed even in this your day. But who, if you heed not, will also one day judge you, and with whom there is no variableness, nor shadow of turning? My dear young friends, straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth to eternal life, and few there be that find it. Few, 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 for he who will not give up all for Christ's sake has given up nothing. If you would live in the friendship of this world, if indeed you are not prepared to give up everything you most fondly cherish, should the Lord require it of you, then, I say, put the idea of Christ deliberately on one side at once. Spit upon him, buffet him, crucify him anew, do anything you like, so long as you secure the friendship of this world while it is still in your power to do so. The pleasures of this brief life may not be worth paying for by the torments of eternity but they are something while they last. If, on the other hand, you would live in the friendship of God and be among the number of those for whom Christ has not died in vain, if, in a word, you value your eternal welfare, then give up the friendship of this world. Of a surety you must make your choice between God and mammon for you cannot serve both. I put these considerations before you, if so homely a term may be pardoned, as a plain matter of business. There is nothing low or unworthy in this, as some lately have pretended, for all nature shows us that there is nothing more acceptable to God than an enlightened view of our own self-interest. Never let anyone delude you here. It is a simple question of fact. Did certain things happen, or did they not? If they did happen, is it reasonable to suppose that you will make yourselves and others more happy 
by one course of conduct or by another. And now let me ask you what answer you have made to this question hitherto. Whose friendship have you chosen? If, knowing what you know, you have not yet begun to act according to the immensity of the knowledge that is in you, then he who builds his house and lays up his treasure on the edge of a crater of molten lava is a sane, sensible person in comparison with yourselves. I say this as no figure of speech or bugbear with which to frighten you, but as an unvarnished, unexaggerated statement which will be no more disputed by yourselves than by me. And now Mr. Hawke, who up to this time had spoken with singular quietness, changed his manner to one of greater warmth, and continued, Oh, my young friends, turn, turn, turn now while it is called today. Now from this hour, from this instant, stay not even to gird up your loins, Look not behind you for a second, but fly into the bosom of that Christ who is to be found of all who seek him, and from that fearful wrath of God which lieth in wait for those who know not the things belonging to their peace. For the Son of Man cometh as a thief in the night, and there is not one of us can tell but what this day his soul may be required of him if there is even one here who has heeded me. And he let his eye fall for an instant upon almost all his hearers, but especially on the earnest set. I shall know that it was not for nothing that I felt the call of the Lord, and heard as I thought a voice by night that bade me come hither quickly, for there was a chosen vessel who had need of me. Here Mr. Hawk ended rather abruptly. His earnest manner, striking countenance, and excellent delivery had produced an effect greater than the actual words I have given can convey to the reader. The virtue lay in the man more than what he said. As for the last few mysterious words about his having heard a voice by night, their effect was magical. There was not one who did not look down to the ground, nor who in his heart did not half believe that he was the chosen vessel on whose especial behalf God had sent Mr. Hawke to Cambridge. Even if this were not so, each one of them felt that he was now, for the first time in the actual presence of one who had a direct communication from the Almighty and they were thus suddenly brought a hundredfold nearer to the New Testament miracles. They were amazed, not to say scared, and as though by tacit consent they gathered together, thanked Mr. Hawke for his sermon, said good-night in a humble, deferential manner to Badcock and the other Simeonites, and left the room together. They had heard nothing but what they had been hearing all their lives. How was it, then, that they were so dumbfounded by it? I suppose partly because they had lately begun to think more seriously, and were in a fit state to be impressed, partly from the greater directness with which each felt himself addressed, through the sermon being delivered in a room, 
and partly to the logical consistency, freedom from exaggeration, and profound air of conviction with which Mr. Hawk had spoken. His simplicity and obvious earnestness had impressed them even before he had alluded to his special mission. But this clenched everything, and the words, Lord, is it I, were upon the hearts of each as they walked pensively home through moonlit courts and cloisters. I do not know what passed among the Simeonites after the earnest set had left them, but they would have been more than mortal if they had not been a good deal elated with the results of the evening. Why, one of Ernest's friends was in the University Eleven, and he had actually been in Badcock's rooms, and had slunk off on saying good-night as meekly as any of them. It was no small thing to have scored a success like this. CHAPTER Fifty. Ernest felt now that the turning point of his life had come. He would give up all for Christ, even his tobacco. So he gathered together his pipes and pouches, and locked them up in his portmanteau under his bed where they should be out of sight, and as much out of mind as possible. He did not burn them, because someone might come in who wanted to smoke, and though he might abridge his own liberty, yet as smoking was not a sin, there was no reason why he should be hard on other people. After breakfast he left his rooms to call on a man named Dawson, who had been one of Mr. Hawke's hearers on the preceding evening, and who was reading for ordination at the forthcoming Ember Weeks, now only four months distant. This man had been always of a rather serious turn of mind, a little too much so for Ernest's tastes, but times had changed and Dawson's undoubted sincerity seemed to render him a fitting counsellor for Ernest at the present time. As he was going through the first court of John's on his way to Dawson's rooms, he met Badcock, and greeted him with some deference. His advance was received with one of those ecstatic gleams which shone occasionally upon the face of Badcock, and which, if Ernest had known more, would have reminded him of Robespierre. As it was, he saw it and unconsciously recognized the unrest and self-seekingness of the man, but could not yet formulate them. He disliked Badcock more than ever. But as he was going to profit by the spiritual benefits which he had put in his way, he was bound to be civil to him, and civil he therefore was. Badcock told him that Mr. Hawk had returned to town immediately his discourse was over, but that before doing so he had inquired particularly who Ernest and two or three others were. I believe each one of Ernest's friends was given to understand that he had been more or less particularly inquired after. Ernest's vanity, for he was his mother's son, was tickled at this. The idea again presented itself to him that he might be the one for whose benefit Mr. Hawk had been sent. There was something, too, in Badcock's manner which conveyed the idea that he could say more if he chose, but had been enjoined to silence. On reaching Dawson's rooms he found his friend in raptures over the discourse of the preceding evening. Hardly less delighted was he with the effect it had produced on Ernest. He had always known, he said, 
that Ernest would come round. He had been sure of it, but he had hardly expected the conversion to be so sudden. Ernest said no more had he, but now that he saw his duty so clearly, he would get ordained as soon as possible, and take a curacy, even though the doing so would make him have to go down from Cambridge earlier, which would be a great grief to him. Dawson applauded this determination, and it was arranged that as Ernest was still more or less of a weak brother, Dawson should take him, so to speak, in spiritual tow for a while, and strengthen and confirm his faith. An offensive and defensive alliance, therefore, was struck up between this pair, who were in reality singularly ill-assorted, and Ernest set to work to master the books on which the bishop would examine him. Others gradually joined them till they formed a small set or church, for these are the same things, and the effect of Mr. Hawke's sermon, instead of wearing off in a few days, as might have been expected, became more and more marked, so much that it was necessary for Ernest's friends to hold him back rather than urge him on, for he seemed likely to develop, as indeed he did for a time, into a religious enthusiast. In one matter only did he openly backslide. He had, as I said above, locked up his pipes and tobacco so that he might not be tempted to use them. All day long on the day after Mr. Hawke's sermon he let them lie in his portmanteau bravely, but this was not very difficult, as he had for some time given up smoking till after hall. After hall this day he did not smoke till chapel time, and then went to chapel in self-defense. When he returned, he determined to look at the matter from a common-sense point of view. On this, he saw that, provided tobacco did not injure his health, and he really could not see that it did, it stood much on the same footing as tea or coffee. Tobacco had nowhere been forbidden in the Bible, but then it had not been discovered and had probably only escaped prescription for this reason. We can conceive of St. Paul or even our Lord himself as drinking a cup of tea, but we cannot imagine either of them smoking a cigarette or a churchwarden. Ernest could not deny this, and admitted that Paul would almost certainly have condemned tobacco in good terms if he had known of its existence. Was it not then taking a rather mean advantage of the Apostle? to stand on his not having actually forbidden it. On the other hand, it was possible that God knew Paul would have forbidden smoking, and had purposely arranged the discovery of tobacco for a period at which Paul should be no longer living. This might seem rather hard on Paul, considering all he had done for Christianity, but it would be made up to him in other ways. These reflections satisfied Ernest that on the whole, he had better smoke. So he sneaked to his portmanteau and brought out his pipes and tobacco again. There should be moderation, he felt, in all things, even in virtue. So for that night he smoked immoderately. It was a pity, however, that he had bragged to Dawson about giving up smoking. The pipes had better be kept in a cupboard for a week or two, till in other and easier respects Ernest could have proved his steadfastness. Then they might steal out again, little by little, and so they did. 
Ernest now wrote home a letter couched in a vein different from his ordinary ones. His letters were usually all common form and padding, for, as I have already explained, if he wrote about anything that really interested him, his mother always wanted to know more and more about it, every fresh answer being as the lopping off of a hydra's head and giving birth to a half-dozen or more new questions. But in the end it came invariably to the same result, namely that he ought to have done something else, or ought not to go on doing as he proposed. Now, however, there was a new departure, and for the thousandth time he concluded that he was about to take a course of which his father and mother would approve, and in which they would be interested, so that at last he and they might get on more sympathetically than heretofore. He therefore wrote a gushing, impulsive letter, which afforded much amusement to myself as I read it, but which is too long for reproduction. One passage ran, I am now going towards Christ. The greater number of my college friends are, I fear, going away from him. We must pray for them, that they may find peace that is in Christ, even as I have myself found it. Ernest covered his face with his hands for shame as he read this extract from the bundle of letters he had put into my hands. They had been returned to him by his father on his mother's death his mother having carefully preserved them. "'Shall I cut it out?' said I. "'I will, if you like.' "'Certainly not,' he answered. "'And if good-natured friends have kept more records of my follies, pick out any plums that may amuse the reader, and let him have his laugh over them.' But fancy what effect a letter like this, so unled up to, must have produced at Battersby, even Christina refrained from ecstasy over her son's having discovered the power of Christ's word, while Theobald was frightened out of his wits. It was well his son was not going to have any doubts or difficulties, and that he would be ordained without making a fuss over it. But he smelt mischief in this sudden conversion of one who had never yet shown any inclination towards religion. He hated people who did not know where to stop. Ernest was always so outré and strange. There was never any knowing what he would do next, except that it would be something unusual and silly. If he was to get the bit between his teeth after he got ordained and bought his living, he would play more pranks than ever he, Theobald, had done. The fact doubtless of his being ordained and having bought a living would go a long way to steady him, and if he married, his wife must see to the rest. This was his only chance, and to do justice to his sagacity, Theobald in his heart did not think very highly of it. When Ernest came down to Battersby in June, he imprudently tried to open up a more unreserved communication with his father, then was his want. The first of Ernest's snipe-like flights on being flushed by Mr. Hawke's sermon was in the direction of ultra-evangelicalism. Theobald himself had been much more low than high church. This was the normal development of the country clergyman during the first years of his clerical life, between, we will say, the years 1825 to 1850. 
but he was not prepared for the almost contempt with which Ernest now regarded the doctrines of baptismal regeneration and priestly absolution. Hoity-toity, indeed, what business had he with such questions? Nor for his desire to find some means of reconciling Methodism and the Church. Theobald hated the Church of Rome, but he hated dissenters, too, for he found them, as a general rule, troublesome people to deal with. He always found people who did not agree with him troublesome to deal with. Besides, they set up for knowing as much as he did. Nevertheless, if he had been let alone, he would have leaned towards them rather than towards the high church party. The neighboring clergy, however, would not let him alone. One by one they had come under the influence, directly or indirectly, of the Oxford movement which had begun twenty years earlier. It was surprising how many practices he now tolerated, which in his youth he would have considered popish. He knew very well, therefore, which way things were going in church matters, and saw that, as usual, Ernest was setting himself the other way. The opportunity for telling his son that he was a fool was too favorable not to be embraced, and Theobald was not slow to embrace it. Ernest was annoyed and surprised, for had not his father and mother been wanting him to be more religious all his life? Now that he had become so, they were still not satisfied. He said to himself that a prophet was not without honor save in his own country, but he had been lately, or rather until lately, getting into an odious habit of turning proverbs upside down and it occurred to him that a country is sometimes not without honor save for its own profit. Then he laughed, and for the rest of the day felt more as he used to feel before he had heard Mr. Hawke's sermon. He returned to Cambridge for the long vacation in 1858, none too soon, for he had to go in for the voluntary theological examination, which bishops were now beginning to insist upon. He imagined all the time he was reading that he was storing himself with the knowledge that would best fit him for the work he had taken in hand. In truth, he was cramming for a pass. In due time he did pass, creditably, and was ordained deacon with a half a dozen others of his friends in the autumn of 1858. He was then just twenty-three years old. End of chapter 50. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman.